Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton and this is Multipolarista. Today I'm joined by a good friend of mine, Brian Mir, who's an excellent journalist. He's been living in Brazil for decades and he works with Telesur and also Brazil Wire. Brazil Wire is probably the best English language resource to get reporting on Brazil. And today, of course, we're talking about the historic victory of Lula da Silva in the presidential elections, the second round on October 30th. Lula won with 50.9% of the vote, and he defeated the far-right incumbent president, Jair Bolsonaro, who got 49.1%. That means that Lula got 50, he got 2.1 million more votes than Jair Bolsonaro. So it was pretty close. However, this is the first time since the restoration of democracy after the dictatorship was installed by the U.S. and it was overthrown in the 1980s, that this is the first time that an incumbent president has been defeated. So Lula made, made history, not only by defeating Bolsonaro, but even though it looks like it's a very close race, this is actually the first time that a, a president has accomplished this. And in his speech, his victory speech, Lula called for ending poverty and ending hunger. He said his top priority will be making sure that every Brazilian has breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He said it's ridiculous in a country that exports food that there are 30 million people hungry. He said that homeless people who live under bridges need to be given houses. He said that he wants to provide jobs for poor people to fight poverty. He wants to expand education and ensure women's equality. It, it was a very ambitious, uh, very ambitious victory speech in which he really showed that Lula is a man of the people. He's a supporter of the working class. Lula himself comes from a very poor background. He lived in a rural, underdeveloped area, area that didn't have electricity and, and clean water. And he's, of course, from the left-wing workers' party. Now, there are a lot of things to talk about today, and Brian is the best guest to talk about with this with. Um, for instance, we know that, that the Workers' Party coalition that it formed with the Communist Party and the Green Party, it does not have a majority in either of the chambers of the Congress. So Lula is going to have obstacles, but he's used to those obstacles. He never had a majority when he was in office the first two terms in the early 2000s. We're going to talk about what this means for Brazilian politics. And then, of course, at the show, I focus a lot on geopolitics and international politics. So we're going to discuss what this means for the BRICS system. Brazil is, of course, the B in BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. And Lula da Silva himself was one of the co-founders of the BRICS system. A few days before the election, he called for expanding the BRICS to add Argentina and other countries. And he's also called for strengthening organizations of regional unity, like the CELAC, like UNASUR, like MERCOSUR. So this is going to be a game changer. That's why I call this episode a game changer for the region and, and really for the world, because Lula has called for a multipolar world. He doesn't want Brazil just to be a significant regional power. He understands that Brazil, the seventh most populous country on earth, with 215 million people, with one of the largest economies on earth. It has significant influence, and it should play an important role on the international stage. He's called for trying to broker peace in the war in Ukraine, and in general, just calling for peace and stability around the world. He's condemned Washington's new Cold War on China. So that's a very broad overview of the things we want to talk, to, talk about today. But Brian, let's start with just kind of uh, an overview 
of what the situation looks like in Brazil. You were out reporting last night. You were in Sao Paulo. You've lived in Brazil for many decades. Talk about what the situation was like uh, on the streets. There are all these people on, uh, you know, Avenida Paulista. I saw hundreds of thousands flooding the streets, celebrating. What, what are the Brazilian people saying in response to this victory? Well, first of all, it's important to debunk a few false narratives that are that I've seen, especially among kind of like U.S. left or academic type um, self-proclaimed radical leftists, you know, and also uh, through BBC and other media companies. First of all, the vast majority of the people on Paulista Avenue last night, and there were at least 100, maybe 200,000 of them were from the working class, you know, and many from the working class social movements and labor unions. The working class and the poor voted for Lula at a two to one ratio over Bolsonaro. Most of Bolsonaro's support, including his evangelical Christian support, is from the petite bourgeois and from the upper middle class and the wealthy, right? The only demographic that Lula continually led the polls in uh, by a huge amount was people from families making less than two times the minimum salary. All the other demographic groups supported Bolsonaro. This is important to point out because you see this ongoing effort, especially by the BBC, to portray um, Bolsonaro's support base being mostly like um, poor evangelical Christians, evangelicals in favelas, you know, even uh, black women evangelicals. Black women were the demographic that most voted for Lula, right? From favelas, from anywhere, right? Including even most. Black women evangelicals voted for Lula. Most evangelical Christians making, you know, less than the minimum salary, poor evangelical Christians voted for Lula. You know, so there's this kind of like false imposition of um, what happened, you know, the same kind of narrative they tried to build with Trump uh, in, the, in the U.S. saying that most of Trump's followers were poor. He had the real support of the working class. They tried to um, say that about Bolsonaro as well. And it's just, it's factually inaccurate, you know? So that's, a, that's an important first thing to point out. A second thing that I've seen circulating, um, as, as I said before, among like intellectual American leftists and stuff, is that kind of like the Brazil's so-called real left, you know, begrudgingly supported Lula. And that's another huge misconception. Unless your conception of real left are just um, people from, tiny, you know, self-proclaimed vanguard left political parties that have never elected a single public official, you know, uh, you have this community, this tiny community of like anti-PT leftists, but the actual leftist organizations that, that do things, you know, for mainly, I'll give a big example, the, the landless rural workers movement has always been on board with the workers party, you know, the landless rural workers movement, which managed to elect um, for the first time in its history, two people into the federal Congress and four people into state Congresses. So the, this idea that, um, for example, on Police Avenue, both on Saturday when there was a huge rally with Lula, Pepe Mojica was with there on the sound car with Lula and Haddad and Alkman going down Paulista Avenue. And then last night as well, what I saw on the street were a lot of people from the squatters movements from the MST, you know, uh, student 
activists and things like that. And last night was just like a general outpouring of people coming in from all over the city, all sides of the city to, to just celebrate. Yeah, this is so crucial to understand why Lula won. He had the working class support. The Workers' Party had that working class support. And you can see this clearly reflected in the victory speech that he gave. I have to say, you know, as someone from the United States, it's always incredible to hear a president, especially the president of a major country like Brazil, dedicate the bulk of their speech to discussing fighting poverty and inequality. In the United States, the richest country on earth, you know, according to uh, bourgeois metric measurements, which aren't very accurate, but the U.S. has all this wealth, and yet it has a huge number of homeless people that grows every single year. It has millions of people who, who suffer from hunger in this w very wealthy country. Brazil is much less wealthy, although it's the largest economy in Latin America. And we saw that Lula dedicated his speech to saying, we, my goal, my top priority is to end hunger in this country. 30 million Brazilians suffer from hunger. He said that I never imagined to see the growth, the skyrocketing growth of poverty in the last few years under Bolsonaro. And he also called for, um, you know, providing jobs and more education and social programs. So it's no surprise why Lula was very popular. Now, I just want to say, as someone who lives in, in Nicaragua and Latin America, but a much smaller country, the victory is so significant for the region. People really need to understand that Brazil's population, 215 million, this is the largest, most populous country in Latin America. Basically, if you take the rest of the region and combine it, it's a little bigger than Brazil, but Brazil represents, I mean, almost you know, more than half of Latin America. The second biggest country in terms of population is Mexico, so which is half, nearly half the population. So this is a massive victory for the entire region. Talk about how, you know, you mentioned that Pepe Mojica was in Brazil. Talk about how Lula has always been part of this process of Latin American regional unity and how not only is this important for the Brazilian working class, but for the region as a whole. Well, um, you know, the Workers' Party's basically ethos comes out of this tradition from the um, 1940s and 1950s of um, developmentalism. It's, it's a kind of um, economic approach that was pioneered by people like Raul Prebisch at CEPLAC at, at the UN agency in Chile in the, in the 1940s and 1950s that believes in um, increasing sovereignty, including economic sovereignty, import replacement through stimulus for industry, and South-South collaboration and cooperation with, with other countries instead of like focusing on bilateral relationships with the United States which is what always happens when a dictator or someone from the right comes into power in a Latin American country. Brazil in general has a good record on South-South um, solidarity. I mean, even among right-wing governments like Fernando Henrique Cardoso, he never you know, chastised Cuba. He, he, even he met with Fidel Castro on a few occasions, but I think one of the symbols of Lula's approach to <clears throat> regional integration was when he and Hugo Chavez 
together. Hold on a second. This is my second consecutive stream. Yeah, I know you're doing a lot of interviews today. Very he, popular. He, he and Hugo Chavez in 2003 defeated the free trade agreement of the Americas, which was an attempt by the United States to make like a giganto NACLA for all of Latin America. It was backed by the Rockefellers. It was backed by um, ASCOA, which is this big corporate think tank uh, that represents the interests of all the big mining and petroleum and you know agribusiness companies that pillage Latin America the entire time. And when he joined together with Hugo Chavez to defeat the FTAA, yeah, that looks like that was that Cancun maybe. Well, that's a little bit later. That's interesting too, right? I was in the World Social Forum in 2003 in Porto Alegre. Every one of these people spoke there. <laughs> you know, uh, 2000, 2002, before the election even. So like a lot of these, the, the World Social Forum had a big important you know, role in Latin American integration of the left as well. Because I remember like Evo Morales, Rafael Correa, Lula, they all spoke at the World Social Forum before they were elected president. Chavez was there, he was already president. But that's an important, you know, that that whole process of the World Social Forum had an important, um, you know, influence on regional integration as well. And it, yeah, I mean, Kirshner, these, Lula gets criticized, you know, so, sometimes for not being left enough, right? For not being left enough. But if you look at his political, um, his international political policies, they're pretty fundamentally important. I mean, he's the founder of the BRICS, right? He didn't just like join BRICS, he helped come up with the idea. BRICS was born out of IBSA, which is a, something that I actually participated in a few meetings with in India. IBSA was India, Brazil, and South Africa. And then at some point, Lula was like, well, why don't we add China and, and, uh, and Russia? With those countries together, you have a very strong alternate, you know, potential for a very strong alternate trade block <clears throat> to break the United States, you know, um, monopoly, you know, to create, it, to break the United States unipolarity. I can't underestimate how important, I can't over, I don't know what I'm saying. BRICS is just like, it's so important. Even Bolsonaro didn't abandon BRICS. There's some misunderstandings uh, about it. He didn't just like give up on BRICS, but but uh, it's Brazil's going to move from being a passive actor in the BRICS uh, coalition, which it was under Bolsonaro, just like showing up at the meeting and saying a few nice things. It's going to become a protagonist in BRICS right now. And I think that's really important. You know, it's important that... Um, BRICS isn't just a con just isn't just a block that's like led by China and Russia. It needs the other country members have strong voices in it. No, I don't know who this guy. Who's this guy on the left of Lula in this picture? Medvedev. Oh, Medvedev. Was, okay. All right. Yeah, Back at the time Medvedev, he was Russian yeah, president. No, but you, you were anyone from South Africa there. Well, yeah, I guess this photo is. I don't know if it's cut off. I was just trying to find the the full photo. Yeah. But the point is that. BRICS was officially formed in 2009 when Lula was president. And uh, we need to stress that point that Lula himself was one of the creators. It was one, it was his vision to help create BRICS. And now he's calling for expanding it. In fact, just a few days before the second round of the election on October 30th, 
Lula reiterated his call for expanding BRICS, and he said he supports Argentina joining. We also see that Iran wants to join, potentially even Saudi Arabia, potentially Turkey. It's going to continue expanding. And um, what's also incredible is he reassured his commitment to expanding institutions of regional integration, like the CELAC, the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States, UNASUR, the, um, which is a, a South American regional bloc. And he also even called, he uh, proposed the idea of creating a pan-Latin American currency to end their dependency on the dollar. So, I mean, if you want to respond briefly to this, Brian, it's kind of so stupid that it's not really worth the response, but there was this kind of like a right-wing Trumpist kind of like Bannonite propaganda trying to portray Lula as like the Soros left and like supposedly a puppet of the U.S. Democratic Party, which is just completely preposterous considering it was the Obama administration that oversaw the 2016 coup that removed the Workers' Party President Dilma Rousseff from office. And the whole Operation Lava Jato and, and the coup was set in motion by the Obama Justice Department. I, I mean, maybe you can respond to this ridiculous narrative that like Lula is Soros left controlled opposition or whatever. It's just fantasy projection. It has nothing to do with reality. These people don't even understand Brazil or how Brazil works. It's just, it's just a joke. I mean, you, you look at, all right, three days after Dilma Rousseff was illegally and unjustly impeached for committing a budgetary infraction that was a non-impeachable offense called fiscal peddling that was legalized immediately after she left office that Bolsonaro did during his entire presidency. I mean, remember all these self-righteous journalists leading up to the impeachment talking, no, it really is important. It really was a big crime that she did. Fiscal peddling is a really big deal. They just remained silent the whole time. Bolsonaro was doing it all the time. But then, okay, after she left office, she was. they proved that she didn't even do it, right? So it was just a nonsensical, obvious uh, excuse to it hold was a coup. coup. Yeah, it was a, absolutely a coup. Three days afterwards, Joe Biden, Vice President Joe Biden, met with Michelle Temer in Europe. They hugged, they laughed together, and Biden said, I'm giving you a message from the Obama administration that you have our full support. You have the full support of the U.S. government, okay? You can look that up. I mean, during the days leading up to the um, the coup, top officials from the from the opposition PSDB party, like Aloisio Nunes, flew up. Jose Serra flew up to negotiate the privatization of Petrobras with John Kerry. Yeah, look, there's the there it is. That's three days after the coup. So please, you know, like, I mean, why not? It's almost like flat earthism to claim that. Lula is like, you know, the, the deer of the, you know, of the Democratic Party. It's like flat earthism. I mean, obviously, he's got begrudging support of the Democratic Party right now. First of all, there's a core of around 30 congressmen and congresswomen who actually are connected to the, the labor movement and things like that, who actually showed support for Lula during his political imprisonment and things like that. So there's a tiny amount of Democrats that do... You know, and it's not just progressive caucus members either. I mean, some of the most uh, obvious people you would think have been would have been showing solidarity with Lula, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, haven't. You know, sometimes it's these Congress people are more surprising. You wouldn't imagine Hank Johnson, Susan Wild. There's a small core that, you know, 
that seems to actually support Lula. But for the most part, it looks like the entire economic um, deep austerity policy that was implemented immediately after the coup, which put like, they passed a constitutional resolution <clears throat> to put spending caps on health and education spending before the pandemic, they, which ended up gutting you know, these institutions. They rose the retirement age. They transformed Brazil into a right to work um, nation. I mean, only a few of the worst states in the United States don't let unions organize the way that they, they've crippled the unions in Brazil. That was all, it looks like that whole policy called Bridge to the Future, it was drafted by the Democrats, you know, by, by neoliberal Democrats. So, I mean, sure, the, the, but the party, what I was starting to say, like the party itself, the leadership, Biden and these people, they're begrudgingly supporting Lula right now only because of Bolsonaro's relationship with Steve Bannon and Trump. You know, because Bolsonaro didn't recognize the Biden victory. He was the last world leader to recognize Biden's electoral victory. So just out of an instinct for self-preservation and vindictiveness due to the relationship between Bolsonaro and Trump and Bannon and these people, they're, uh, you know, they, they, be, they sent a congratulatory letter. They're, they're supporting um, Lula's victory right now. And I, I imagine... <clears throat> that they're going to immediately start trying to undermine his presidency after he takes office because they don't want a Keynesian de developmentalist doing things like what he said last night. He's going to try. He said Brazil shouldn't be a country that just exports commodities. You know, it should be a country that exports knowledge. It should be a country that exports industrial products. We have to reindustrialize Brazil. That's not in the interest of the United States. The United States just sees Brazil as a source of cheap commodities resource extraction exactly and that's that's the export oriented model that you were talking about i mean in latin america there's a long history of something you're referring to isi import substitution industrialization this developmental model it's not necessarily socialist but it's a it's a way of trying to develop these partially colonized economies so they're they're not just resource colonies for the imperial core so they don't just you know export uh, raw materials and commodities to the U.S. and Europe, they actually want to develop their own industry, which, of course, can raise the living standards of their own workers. And that's something that Lula is, is deeply involved in and he's, he's part of. And let's not forget when Lula was president in the first decade of the 2000s, the Brazilian economy grew at record rates and it, I believe it tripled in size. And he's he wants to bring back some of those policies. This is actually a good segue because I wanted to ask you about the, pri the mass privatizations we've seen under Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro himself, who you know uses this discourse of like nationalism, which is ridiculous because he's actually one of the most anti-nationalist leaders Brazil has had in decades in the sense that he sold off his country to foreign corporations doing mass privatizations of state assets. You mentioned Petrobras, which was the largest, most important company in Brazil. And his economic minister... Paulo Guedes is a Chicago boy who studied at the University of Chicago, and he went to Chile to teach economics under the fascist Pinochet dictatorship. So talk about what uh, what Bolsonaro's and Guedes' economic policies has have done to Brazil. Okay, it's it's worth noting Guedes didn't just get his PhD in economics from the University of Chicago. He studied under Milton Friedman. He's one of the original Chicago boys, and he's widely considered to be V 
the most mediocre of them, right? Like he couldn't even publish his dissertation <laughs> in Brazil. So he's a mediocre Chicago boy, right? <clears throat> but I think it's important to point out here just to bring the Democrats back into this, which is that there was total continuity on economic policy between the coup government of Michel Temer, which was installed by the Democrats, and the government of Bolsonaro, which was installed by the Republicans. There's this economic platform they created called Bridge to the Future. After Dilma was removed, Temer gave a speech in New York, and he said, oh, well, I, I even believe it was at the headquarters of ASCOA. He said, well, Dilma was removed, you know, because she didn't support Bridge to the Future. And um, Bridge to the Future, I mean, like, the original document, Bridge, you know, the plan for Bridge to the Future, it was written in such poor Portuguese that people speculated that it had been almost like Google translated from English. <laughs> it wasn't written by a Brazilian person. And it's just a laundry list of Washington consensus style, deep austerity cuts and privatizations. And so after Temer took office, changed the constitution to butcher public health and spending, pushed labor laws back 80 years, you know, back to the 1930s, um, you know, and auctioned off a large portion of Brazil's offshore petroleum reserves that were um, owned by Petrobras at the time, Bolsonaro took office and his economics minister, Paulo Guedes, gave total continuity. So if you looked at all of the recommendations in Bridge to the Future, it's like a check, almost like a checklist. Okay, so Temer was unable to raise the, re to raise the retirement age. So the Bolsonaro administration managed to raise the retirement age. Temer was unable to start charging uh, tuition for Brazil's free public university system, which was massively expanded um, during the, the Workers' Party years. Not just expanded, but um, they pushed through a social class-based affirmative action program, which only fam you know kids from families that made under like one and a half times the minimum salary or two times the minimum salary who had studied only in public schools qualified for with a small differential for Afro-Brazilians. <clears throat> so the, the uh, percentage of university students in the system that are working class rose from like 2% to 52%. You know, they massively, they structurally changed uh, the university system. Uh, Bridge to the Future recommended charging, starting to charge tuition in the public universities. And it was like, well, at first we'll charge tuition for middle-class people who can afford it. Then the poor will be able to get grants based on the U.S. system with Pell Grants. I mean, there was a time when a Pell Grant could pay your university tuition in the U.S., the public university, it can't anymore, right? But um, Temer wasn't able to do it. Bolsonaro tried to do it. Uh, two separate protests took place within a two-week period, which brought more than a million people to the streets of hundreds of towns of cities in Brazil, and they successfully blocked Bolsonaro from doing this, but he tried. His uh, government privatized Petrobras' entire gas station franchise, which was the largest gas station franchise in Brazil. It was taken over by BlackRock, okay? 
um, <clears throat> they shut down oil refineries so that now, absurdly, an example of exactly what uh, people like Raoul Prebisch, Selsun Furtado, and these uh, economists from the 1950s, you know, the exact example of the problem with the economy in Latin America. Now Brazil is exporting petroleum to the United States and buying 20% of its gasoline back from the United States because Bolsonaro shut down so many refineries. When he took office, Brazil was self-sufficient in gasoline. You know, so the, I mean, these are just just examples. I mean, also like just uh, um, massively deregulating pesticide industry and gutting all of the environmental agencies and things like that. It's just like so much damage has been done to Brazil over the last four years, over the last six years. So it's going to take a while to get things back to where they even were, before, you know, in the first place before we can even start moving forwards. Yeah, I mean, definitely Lula has a lot of obstacles facing him. And we'll talk about Congress as well in a second. Um, just undoing the damage done, not only by Bolsonaro, but by Temer. Uh, it's going to be a very difficult uh, process. And of course, this is the result of two US-backed coups or a kind of ongoing process of coups. We talked about the judicial coup against Dilma Rousseff, the Workers' Party president in 2016. But let's also talk about the politically motivated imprisonment of Lula in 2018, backed by the Trump administration, the U.S. Justice Department. This is what led Bolsonaro to, be, to being installed in power. He, he basically came to power through a U.S.-backed coup because Lula was leading in all of the polls in the 2018 presidential election, and he was imprisoned on false charges. The United Nations itself said this year, I mean, it came pretty late, but the UN Human Rights Committee finally ruled that Lula was arbitrarily detained. They said the investigation and prosecution of Lula da Silva violated his right to be tried by an impartial tribunal, his right to privacy and his political rights. So that's as, you know, this is from, again, the UN Human Rights Committee. That is as clear as it gets that this was a politically motivated coup. Talk about the 2018 coup against Lula backed by the U.S. and how that was the only way that Bolsonaro even came to power in the first place. Well, it's one of the reasons I'm so happy Lula won uh, last, last night because all of the media was getting, you know, if, if Bolsonaro had won, they would have just pretended that this had never happened. And they would have said, oh, you know, Bolsonaro wasn't elected in 2018 because Lula was imprisoned. He would have won anyway. Look, he just beat Lula, blah, blah, blah. Ignoring the fact that, you know, Bolsonaro spent, according to Reuters, which is not, you know, hardly a left wing, you know, Reuters did everything to help put Bolsonaro in power in the first place. But even Reuters said Bolsonaro has spent 173 billion reais of government funds He's chat, he channeled it into his campaign. Bolsonaro spent over 300 times more money on his campaign than Lula. In 2018, Bolsonaro did not have the machine of the state on his side to help him win an election. It is clear uh, that Brian, it was money. I, I'm sorry to cut you off. I just want you to, to repeat that. You said that Bolsonaro spent 300 times more money in his campaign than Lula. That's an incredible statistic. Yeah. Lula spent, Lula got about, a little bit under the equivalent of like 
$2 million in campaign donations compared to 65 million private donations for Bolsonaro. But Bolsonaro spent $173 billion uh, of government funding on his campaign. Uh, the total amount spent on Lula campaign, including from the political party fund, was around $30 million. The total amount spent on the Bolsonaro campaign was around $54 billion. Okay. <clears throat> and how did he do it? Well, he took money away from cancer treatment and cancer research and routed it into um, uh, financing a cut in the gasoline tax, you know, during the lead up to the elections because we were getting like record high gasoline prices. And so he artificially, he used money that was supposed to be in the already like gutted public health system to, uh, and he, he slashed money to the university system. He, he halted all payments to the federal public universities and routed it into these measures that would artificially lowered fuel prices, food prices, and things like that, you know? And he, he raised welfare prices by 50%, like two months before the election as well. So it's important to point out when you see these, you know, um, Anglo pundits saying, oh, you know, Lula just squeaked by. I mean, no, look at the, if you look at the money that was spent, it's a miracle that Lula managed to pull this off, you know, because money in a capitalist system, unfortunately, is, the, is one of the main, you know, drivers of an election. I can't think of any election in the U.S. where such an underfunded candidate has managed to beat someone, you know, with that much more uh, money behind them. Maybe there is. I don't pay that much attention to U.S. politics, but... So that's, I mean, that's a big deal. And that's why in 2018, Lula would have just clobbered Bolsonaro because Bolsonaro didn't have these resources. <clears throat> he didn't have much commercial airtime. Lula was leading Bolsonaro in the polls. Lula was leading the polls by more than double of the sum of all other candidates combined after he'd been imprisoned for three months and completely illegally and arbitrarily cut off blocked from speaking to anyone in the press. You know, it was yeah, anyone in the press in Brazil can interview a mass murderer behind bars or rapist or anything. But this judge, Sergio Moro, who went on to be a cabinet minister in the Bolsonaro administration, a clear example of quid pro quo, um, blocked Lula. He issued an order just blocking Lula can't speak to reporters. Three months after he'd been barred from speaking to the press, he was still leading in the polls by that that much of a margin, he would have won that election from behind bars without campaigning. And the first thing that Bolsonaro did after he took office was gave Sergio Moro the justice minister position and expanded the justice ministry into something called a super justice ministry um, with more power and, you know, and then like a month later, they both visited CIA headquarters together. It's the first time a Brazilian president has ever visited CIA headquarters. And uh, former governor of Paraná, Roberto Requião, said, um, he asked, like, did, did Sergio Moro's Wi-Fi automatically click on when he walked into on his smartphone when he walked into CIA headquarters? <laughs> but uh, so th this is all important because there's still people in the media trying to act like Lula was just let off. You know, he was exonerated from these arbitrary corruption charges on a technicality. And it's a lie. He wasn't, they, what the Supreme Court did was they said, oh, he could be tried again, 
you know, but you can't use any of the evidence that was presented against him in the Lava Jato, in the Operation Car Wash trials, which, are, which have all been totally reversed due to judicial bias, to criminal judicial bias. And so what the press is insane is that, well, immediately they said, they said look, you, it was all illegally forum shopped to a jurisdiction where didn't have any say, you know, any control over where none of the crimes were committed. If you want to try Lula again, you can open the case up, <clears throat> these cases up in Brasilia, but you can't use any of the evidence from Operation Car Wash. Well, there wasn't any evidence. All Lula was jailed on one coerced plea bargain testimony from a corrupt business executive who was given millions of dollars in illicit asset retention and an 85% sentence reduction and transfer to house arrest in exchange for changing his story three times before they let him out of jail. That was the only evidence. There was no material evidence evidence against Lula. So when a group of you know right-wing prosecutors tried to reopen these charges, again, in Brasilia, they were all immediately dismissed for not having any evidence. So that process is over. Like he's been totally exonerated. It wasn't a technicality because the attempts to reopen the cases was were all thrown out. There was never any evidence. It was just a joke. They spent years in the media pretending that Lula was this massive, he'd, he'd gotten all these millions of dollars in illicit funding and all of this crap. They used to talk about his yacht. Lula has a yacht. And the media was like, well, we need to take a picture of this yacht. And Sergio Moro, the judge was like, no, we're not letting you access any of our evidence. Finally, some reporters found the yacht. It was an 11 foot aluminum fishing rowboat floating <laughs> in a tilapia pond, you know, <laughs> and his friends, you know, modest, you know, country house. That was the yacht, right? Then they, they tried to say that he had owned that country house, right? And that his friend was just a patsy who was letting them, you know, put the property in his name. And they played it up like this huge plantation. It was just like a relatively nice, but not huge, not a mansion or anything, country house with this little tilapia pond next to it. <clears throat> the guy who they tried to portray as a patsy was the former steelworkers union from Campinas, which is the second biggest city in Sao Paulo State. And he'd been the mayor, you know, for years of this city Campinas, which is like the ninth biggest city in Brazil. He obviously had enough money to buy that property. It just so happened because he was like Lula's steel workers union buddy from the 1970s. And they, the two families vacation a lot together. You know, they tried to play it up like this was this huge corruption scandal. That was the second scandal. They, they tried to give him more years behind bars for after he'd already been in prison. It was also just completely thrown out. They could never find out. They could never like prove. Basically, they said that Lula's wife had built a wine cellar in their, in their mansion, in this mansion of this house with illegal funding from a construction company. And it was like a closet with 20 bottles of wine in it that, that she had stocked, you know? As the, as the former first lady of Brazil, she could afford it, right? The, the other thing is when they froze Lula's assets, you know, Sergio Moro issued this order. We're freezing up to $15 million in Lula's assets. And so they froze his assets. <clears throat> you know how much money he had in his bank? I've told you this before. I, mean, I, I, I never tire in ripping it. The money he had that they froze, it was less than half 
of what former U.S. President Obama was charging for a single speaking engagement at that time. It was like two hundred thousand dollars. He had, he had like a nineteen seven a nineteen eighty six Ford pickup truck that was one of his vehicles that they seized. <laughs> and the guy's living like he's still living in the Gary, Indiana of Sao Paulo. I don't mean like it's not as destitute as Gary, but it's an industrial factory suburb of Sao Paulo. And he's not he doesn't have a 25 million euro apartment in Paris like former Brazilian president Fernando Henrique Cardoso. He's a guy with modest tastes. I mean, even that that so-called luxury triplex apartment in in on the beach in Sao Paulo that he never owned or set foot in, that they they use as, as an excuse to jail him, it was kind of even you know as Glenn Greenwald pointed out at the time, it was kind of like scummy and didn't look like something. It looked like below the the standards of a former president of Brazil, you know. <laughs> so it's it's yeah. funny because these are the people who get busted. Arrested for corruption, they don't go after. They don't ask why a former president has a twenty-five million euro apartment in Paris, or or Bolsonaro himself. I mean, that guy. I mean, his family is very closely linked to organized crime and and corruption. I mean, the irony is that the Workers' Party was accused of being corrupt, and yet uh, Bolsonaro's party, which originally I guess was like the uh, social liberal party, and now it's just the liberal party. I it's mean, a different it's, party. He changed parties, but yeah. Yeah, infinitely more corrupt. Well, look at, yeah, so this was all about one apartment that it started when, like a typical person who grew up in poverty, Lula's wife, uh, you know, she, she decided to buy this, like, modest two-bedroom apartment with her own money on installments over the course of, like, 10 years. And so it's a thing they do. I don't understand why anyone does it in Brazil because there's always problems. But a construction company announces they're going to build a building. And so they sell share, you know, apartments in the building before construction begins for a cheaper price so that they can finance the construction. So she'd been paying installments for like eight years on this place. And it looks like the construction company thought, well, wow, if we have a former president moving here, it'll raise the value of the apartment. So let's see if we can offer her, you know, our top apartment in the building at the same price. And she got nervous and refused, you know, and stopped paying the payments. That's that's all that was about, you know. But, yeah, it's just ridiculous because you compare that to the fact that <clears throat> it came out two months ago that the Bolsonaro family has purchased 51 properties including luxury properties in cash in the last like 20 years plus another 56 properties done you know legally through banks and things like that like 51 properties in cash that doesn't raise the you know the level of scrutiny that these weasel you know regime change stenographers in the guardian the new york times washington post you know bbc and other places the kind of moral self-righteous righteousness they the tisk tisking they made about this one apartment in in, in Guarujá, and they're just kind of like silent about these fifty-one properties owned by the Bolsonaro family that were all paid for in cash. It's ridiculous. Yeah, and uh, in his speech, in his victory speech, Lula said, "They buried me alive. I thought they destroyed my political career, but here I am." And 
that that quote is so important and so powerful. They buried me alive. He was in prison for over a year. And by the way, when he was in prison, he was quite elderly. I mean, this guy, he's very powerful. Like, I, I don't have that much energy and I'm like less than half his age. They imprisoned him and he came back. He fought against these fake charges. I mean, he overcame so many incredible obstacles. It, it really is remarkable. And now I want to talk about the more, a little bit more about Lava Jato. Um, you know, we mentioned that the fake charges against him were dropped. And eventually the Supreme Court in Brazil said that he was completely exonerated. You work with Brazil Wire. That's Brazil with an S. It's one of the best resources, an independent media outlet um, that reports in English on Brazil. And you and your colleagues published an article uh, based on these leaked documents that came from the Lava Jato case that came from um, that came from Lula's uh, attorney's team. And it showed that one of the Lava Jato prosecutors referred to the imprisonment of Lula in 2018 as a gift from the CIA. And also, we know you mentioned that Bolsonaro, right after he entered office, and his super justice minister, Sergio Moro, who, of course, was clearly a U.S. asset backed by the U.S. in the fake anti-corruption operation that imprisoned Lula, they visited CIA headquarters, clearly to thank the CIA for helping carry out this coup. Talk a little bit more about these documents that were released in this case and the exoneration of Lula by Brazil's Supreme Court. Okay, uh, first of all, it's important to make a few points here because Greenwald goes around saying, I got Lula out of prison, right? I'm the one, I got him out of prison. Um, Lula's release from prison and the Supreme Court ruling, you know, was based on a motion filed by Lula's lawyers before the these um, Vaza Jato leaks, these telegram leaks came out, on um, based on illegal collaboration with the U.S. government, you know, because um, because of a speech that Kenneth Blanco gave, Assistant Attorney General Kenneth Blanco gave at the Atlantic Council in 2017, in which he bragged about the informal, the constant informal communications between the Department of Justice and the Lava Jato Operation Car Wash prosecuted team. That's illegal in Brazil because there's, he said, it's it's so great to have these informal communications because it bypasses um, bureaucratic protocols which can slow down the, you know, the circulation of information. Well, those protocols are in place to protect sovereignty, right? These are to protect the sovereignty of Brazil. You can't have low-level prosecutors being coached continually by the U.S. Department of Justice and FBI agents, you know, all those communications have to go through the Justice Department in Brazil. Otherwise, it's like, it's almost like espionage or something. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's a violation of sovereignty. So, so there were a lot of um, motions to dismiss and stuff before these leaks came, but these leaks were really important. The Intercept, through the brokerage of Glenn Greenwald, accepted about 3% of six terabytes of leaked telegram conversations between the prosecutors. Some of them included Judge Sergio Morum. And uh, then they started homeopathically releasing article, like one article a week for over a year. <clears throat> I think it was 96 articles in all. And what it, what it showed immediately was that there was constant illegal collusion 
between the judge and the prosecutors. A judge who's supposed to be impartial can't be coaching the prosecutors on how to leak information to the media, you know, and giving them advice on what to say in court and things like that. That was going on the entire time. Then after over a year, um, uh, a couple of other journalists in The Intercept finally released the the article, you know, the leaks that they had a hold of showing U.S. collaboration. This was after the Supreme Court had already seized all of the leaks and passed them on to Lula's defense team. Um, <clears throat> this this is a really important article. I think Andrew Fishman is one of the guys who, who, who was on it. And um, I can't remember the name of the... Brazilian journal stuff at the top of my head. I could check later, but but it, it's an article. Better, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Sorry, that's an article that shows that for a period of several years, a group of eighteen FBI agents led by Leslie Bakshi's was meeting with the Operation Car Wash prosecuting team every two weeks, instructing them how to prosecute Lula and the other people they were going after. And especially because the coerced plea bargain testimony was a new legal measure. It had only been legalized for use in Brazilian courts during the Dilma Rousseff administration at a request by Sergio Moro. She didn't know at the time, it was obviously it was a mistake on Dilma's part, but in, in her mind, she was like, oh yeah, I wanna fight corruption. Is this something that's gonna help us fight corruption? Sure, I'll sign this into law. And so this idea of using coerced plea bargain testimonies was recent. It was new. And it looks like that's what the FBI was giving them advice on, like, go after his family, uh, have a raid on the house of his children. You know, they seized his grandson's iPad, his seven-year-old grandson's iPad, and never gave uh -huh. it back. And, you know, invite the media all the time. Invite the media to all these events. Make it look like they're guilty of something. This is the kind of, you know, coaching that was going on the whole time, which is why it's uh, when, <clears throat> so when, uh, and at the same time, a group of around 20 U.S. congressmen and women were trying to get more and more information about what was the U.S. role in this all. And they, they launched an inquiry in Congress to the Department of Justice demanding answers on, you know, among other things, what was their role in Lula's arrest? And um, it took a long time. They stalled to answer. But when they finally answered, it's like, look, we've been talking about our partnership with Lava Jato, Operation Car Wash, on our own website since 2016. Here's some links to some of our articles about it. This is why it's so ridiculous that people used to and still treat brazil wire myself and you know as conspiracy conspiracy theorists for publishing articles i've written over 40 articles about u.s involvement in lava jato like calling me a conspiracy theorist because i wrote an article about the doj's involvement in lava jato with links to articles on the doj's own website you know but i'm a conspiracy theorist because i'm saying the doj is involved i mean it was all over the media New York Times everywhere in 2016, when um, a U.S. court levied the largest fine in the history of the United States on a foreign company, $3.5 billion fine on Petrobras, Brazil's state petroleum company, uh, as part of, Lava, of Operation Car Wash. That was in the media. And then at that point, 
you know, all of a sudden it all just disappeared. Like from that point forward, no mention of this partnership was made in U.S. media again until this Intercept article that came out. Yeah, I mean, that that episode is so misunderstood and so distorted by the media, including, you know, some independent media outlets have done a very bad job in reporting on that. So I really wish again, want to recommend to everyone listening, you should check out Brazil Wire, one of the best resources, I would say, in terms of English language coverage, the best resource to understand politics in Brazil. You all have really helped inform my my view of Brazil in over the past several years. I want to talk a little bit more about BRICS. We, we were we were discussing earlier about how Lula was one of the co-founders of BRICS. It was partially his idea. I mean, he was so integral in the development of BRICS. We've already seen the response of China's President Xi Jinping. Uh, Reuters just published this newswire based on comments that Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, said about Lula's victory. Uh, she said... I attach great importance to the development of China-Brazil relations. He said that he's going to work with President-elect Lula from a strategic and long-term perspective to jointly plan and promote to a new level the comprehensive strategic partnership between China and Brazil for the benefit of the two countries and its peoples. That, that's, an, that's an important line there. Of course, if you people know how diplomatic ease works, if you like know how diplomats speak, they often speak in a, in a very um, cautious way, but referring to their alliance as a comprehensive strategic partnership is very important because that's the same language that China uses to refer to its alliance with Russia, a comprehensive strategic partnership. And the article notes that relations between China and Brazil worsened under Bolsonaro. Uh, Bolsonaro himself campaigned demonizing China and, and the Chinese communists. He blamed okay. China... Well, one, one second. Okay, he blamed yeah. China for COVID. Um, I, I want to talk about that in a second. Um, and then this article also points out that Lula praised China and its response to COVID. And he also praised the Communist Party of China and contrasted it to the weakening of the state in Latin America and developing countries. So those are clear signs that Lula wants to strengthen his alliance with China. He already condemned the U.S. Cold War against China. And he, he praised specifically China in response to its COVID policies, which saved millions of lives. Whereas Bolsonaro, not only did he blame China for COVID, he was a straight up COVID denier, an anti-vaxxer. And, and after the US, Brazil had probably the worst response to COVID in the entire world. Over a million people died in the US and hundreds of thousands of people died in, in Brazil. So Maybe you can talk about Brazil-China relations and also COVID. Yeah, um, <clears throat> well, Brazil-China relations. I just wanted to point out that, you know, Tucker Carlson, Glenn Greenwald's buddy, did that what, that whole stupid documentary um, trying to make it look like Jair Bolsonaro was the last Latin American leader who, uh, you know, was opposed to China. And how he was such an important ally in the new Cold War <clears throat> against China, and it doesn't hold up. There was some anti-Chinese rhetoric during the first year of Bolsonaro's regime. The most racist anti... I mean, he had ministers like making fun of the way Chinese people talk on tweets and things like that. I mean, it's just like total uh, anti-China stuff. 
those ministers were all forced out of office. And actually, the biggest beneficiary of privatizations during the um, Bolsonaro's government was China in terms of petroleum. They were the only people who bought Petrobras offshore oil reserves during the Bolsonaro, during the first two auctions of the Bolsonaro administration. And trade continued to increase. <clears throat> so that 2009 was the first year that trade with China eclipsed trade with the United States and Brazil. Last year, China engaged in four times more trade with Brazil. I mean, Brazil engaged in four times more trade with China than it did with the United States. So regardless of the rhetoric, the Bolsonaro administration was unable to uh, break any ties with China. China is way too important for Brazil. And that's why it should be treated strategically, which is what is going to happen now with Lula. It's, very, it's good for Brazil that um, someone who has some kind of vision of planning and not just like do everything in a laissez-faire manner uh, based on short-term profits, um, it's, it's going to be good for both countries, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. Bolsonaro campaign demonizing China, his largest trading partner. I mean, it, it shows that this political rhetoric is one thing, but there's also economic reality. China has the world's largest economy, according to purchasing power parity measurement. And the reality is that Bolsonaro did all of these things to try to attack China, blaming it for COVID. And yet the reality is because the Brazilian economy and also ironically, because many of the same Brazilian capitalists who supported Bolsonaro, it was in their economic interest to continuing trade with China. I, I read that allegedly it was actually many of Bolsonaro's corporate sponsors, his funders, the capitalists in Brazil, they were the ones telling him to, to like stop antagonizing China so much because it's the biggest market for our products and we need to do trade with them. And then you talk about COVID. I mean, uh, Bolsonaro, he blamed China for COVID. Like, you know, in the US, Trump blamed China for COVID. They called it like a, the China virus or whatever, which is absurd. We now see Senate Republicans are once again trying to bring back this this uh, conspiracy blaming China and saying it's like a Chinese bioweapon or whatever. Meanwhile, hundreds of thousands of Brazilians died because Bolsonaro basically, ironically, he claimed that it was like a China virus that was like attacking us. But at the same time, he also claimed that it wasn't a big deal. It's, it's this funny like right wing contradiction where they say simultaneously that COVID is an advanced Chinese bioweapon from the Chinese communists to destroy Western mm -hmm. civilization. But simultaneously, it's it also yeah. blue and it's it not It doesn't bad. hurt anybody, though. So it's like a weak international bioweapon. <laughs> yeah, so talk it's, about Brazil's response or lack thereof and how COVID was dealt with. I mean, there's a, there's a whole long congressional investigation that proved a lot of, you know, from... Um, embezzling in vaccine procurement <clears throat> to Stalin for months before the vaccines first arrived and then telling his especially evangelical followers that if they took the vaccine they were going to get sick you know it, it could make women grow beards if you take if women take the vaccine they'll grow beards you know don't use masks all of this stuff um, my wife lost 12 family members you know to covid because they, they live in a city that had a Bolsonarista mayor who <clears throat> didn't do any lockdowns or anything like that. And uh, it's just like now, 
okay, Brazilians his, Brazil historically has had one of the world's best vaccine programs in its public health system. You know, one of the best. And one of the best public health systems for a lot of things, for HIV as well. You know, antiretroviral drugs are free in Brazil, even though Bolsonaro just butchered that program to help fund his re-election campaign as well. Hopefully that's going to be immediately reinstalled. Um, but now, even though he was unable to prevent the vast majority of the Brazilian population from getting vaccinated for COVID, it's having like a lag time effect where <clears throat> they just announced that like right now, less than 60% of Brazilian children at this age for this vaccination have not gotten vaccinated. Less than 60% have gotten vaccinated for polio. And you need like 90% to, to prevent a new polio outbreak. So the World Health um, Organization is worried that there's going to be a polio outbreak here because of Bolsonaro. He's also like not sending the vaccine to clinics in a lot of places because it's another example of cuts he's made in health spending to help his re-election campaign that failed. Yeah, and, and I have to say that across Latin America, Brazil is often seen as a model in terms of its health system. And this goes back even decades, even to be fair, before Lula. I mean, Lula did expand health care and, and spend more money. But, but across Latin America, I've heard many people in multiple countries say that like, they see Brazil's health system as a model. Maybe you can talk a bit more about the communal health system. Well, um, there's a lot of variation state by state, but both my kids were born in, in public hospitals. And uh, uh, the, there's some public maternity hospitals that are better than anything I've seen in the United States to be frank, you know, public. I mean, I, I like living in a country where I know that if I get sick, I'm not going to go bankrupt. It has its problems. You know, these problems have been exacerbated deeply since the 2016 coup. <clears throat> but in general, there are all kinds of things that you can get for free in Brazil, including hundreds of medications, you know, that are free, including antiretrovirals. I think, I don't know what, you know, insulin, insulin is free in Brazil. Things that people in the US pay $1,000 a month for. And so, I mean, I just think in general, having lived in, you know, like 28 years in the US and 27 years in Brazil, knowing how both systems work, I think the treatment is just better when it's public because they don't give you, un they don't recommend unnecessary treatments just to make more money off of you. And they don't, you know, recommend unnecessary medications, you know, just to like get commissions from or something. So like, if you're hurt, they try and figure it out in an efficient way. Whereas in the US, if you get, I've had private health insurance here in Brazil, different periods, depending on my jobs. <clears throat> I remember once I had a good private insurance plan. I went in to the hospital with a case of gout and said, oh, well, do you have any other symptoms? Well, my stomach's upset. Let's do a tomography. Oh, we're worried, you know, we're worried now that your spleen looks a little bit large. I think we've got to hold you here for a few days to see if you have leukemia or not. And so I spent like four days missing work in this hospital, freaking out, you know, and then the person came and said, oh, well, you know, we didn't know how big your spleen was beforehand. So we can't really say you don't have leukemia from your blood tests. So you can go now. 
that's what they do when you have health insurance. When it's public, <laughs> they would have never done that to me in a public system. You know, at the most, they would have said, oh, we're worried you might have some kind of disease, you know, come back in two days and take a blood test, whatever. They wouldn't have held me in a, you know, a private hospital room for that. So I just think in general, public health is always better than the U.S. private system. And the Brazilian system does have its problems. There are situations where it takes a long time to get surgery. In some states, it takes a really long time, you know, uh, but it's free, right? So um, that's the good thing about it. And it's going to improve again now with, you know, Lula's going to lift the constitutional spending caps. I'm sure of it. Um, it'll, it'll improve. Yeah. And so I want to talk now a little bit about Bolsonaro's response to the uh, to Lula's electoral victory or the lack of response. Thus far, he has refused to acknowledge that he lost. And we're seeing signs that he's going to try to pull a Trump and refuse to acknowledge that Lula won. We've also seen comments from Steve Bannon, you know, this far right fascistic operative. Steve Bannon, of course, was the chief strategist for Trump's campaign. But but less known is that Steve Bannon is active around the world. He funds far right groups with the support of billionaires. I mean, it's so funny because Steve Bannon calls himself like a populist or whatever. But actually, he's funded by a bunch of billionaire capitalist oligarchs like he, there's nothing populist about him. He's he's entirely backed by a certain faction of the capitalist class, which is the fascistic far right faction. And Steve Bannon was very involved in Brazil. Steve Bannon's networks were very involved with Bolsonaro and his family, especially his son, Eduardo Bolsonaro. And now we see that Steve Bannon is helping to take the lead in claiming without a single shred of evidence that Lula stole the election, which is, of course, ironic because you can talk about the massive voter suppression where Bolsonaro's uh, loyalists in, in the highway police and the military were trying to like prevent people in Lula in areas where Lula is popular to, from voting on election day. But anyway, the point is that Steve Bannon is taking the lead in claiming without a fraction, without a, a scintilla of evidence that Lula stole the election. And we see that Bolsonaro has refused to acknowledge the victory. So what do you think the Bolsonaristas are, are doing here? And of course, I don't think they're going to be successful, but do you think they'll pull a Trump and just refuse to admit that they lost? Yeah, I think that's already happened. I mean, he spent a year and a half preparing people for this, that the election was going to be stolen. Ironically, as you said, they tried to uh, keep people in the regions that had the most support for Lula from voting. But it was a tactic that doesn't work in Brazil, where, you know, turnout's a lot higher. We don't have an electoral college system. <clears throat> it looks like Bolsonaro got kind of like bad advice with this idea of having his highway police stop buses of taking people to election centers. And in any event, the election court put a stop to it two hours before the end of voting. Um, they're going to try. OK, right now we have some groups of so-called truckers, right? I mean, you and I wrote an article about these trucker strikes that are really orchestrated by you know, that it, it, the people who treat them like trucker strikes ignore that there's a class system within the community of truckers. They're the owners of the big companies that hire truckers. They're the owner operators who are petite bourgeois 
and they're the hired truckers. But groups, you know, trucking companies are blocking off major highways right now. I have a friend who's stuck trying to get to get back to Rio de Janeiro, right? Yeah, there's our there's thing about the trucker protests. <laughs> but and, and but, I'm sorry uh, to cut you off, but we should just point out that this is a tactic that Bolsonaro has used multiple times going back several years where the owners of these trucking companies who are millionaires who fund Bolsonaro, they pay all of these truckers to go out in the streets to paralyze the country. Mm -hmm. This was also something that happened in like Brazil's version of January 6th. You can maybe briefly you can talk about that and how they're bringing those tactics back right now. Yeah, well, I actually I was on there was supposed to be this kind of like January 6th style shutdown of the Supreme Court on September 7th, 2021 in Brazil. And I was there. And basically they act, they pretended that the truckers had like uh, stormed the National Mall called the Esplanada in Brasilia when actually they had a permit and they, they arrived like half an hour early, half an hour before midnight and the police on the scene said, oh, you can come in early. And they, they treated a media event as if they were storming the mall and then they parked as close as they could get to the barricade, um, you know, that was like a hundred yards in front of the Supreme Court. And they were all parked there honking, honking Brazilian flags on the trucks and stuff. I walked by filming discreetly with my smartphone and discovered that they were all from the same company. This company called Pro Torque. The owner, Marlon Baunilla, is a massive supporter of the Bolsonaro campaign. You know, one of these elite comprador types. And and then there were these, you know, viralizing YouTube videos from this one trucker who called himself Zetrovaun. And, you know, I'm coming with helicopters. I'm storming. I've got hundreds of truckers with me. They found out after the event that he, he didn't even have a trucker's license. You know, he wasn't a trucker at all. He had to flee the country. He was arrested in Mexico later. You know, for trying to start an armed insurrection against the Supreme Court. It's not this guy. Yeah, it's not a freedom of speech issue. You know, when you're like, when you're saying we have weapons and we're going to attack, a, you know, a branch of government. It's not. Well, it so, was also reported that, that Eduardo Bolsonaro gave him thousands of dollars to help. He drifted Eduardo Bolsonaro. Yeah, like he just. He said he was coming with helicopters and hundreds of trucks and Eduardo Bolsonaro sent him, you know, $10,000 or something, which he used to flee the country. So we have something similar going on. There are, these, there are these videos circulating on WhatsApp and Telegram saying like, we've closed down hundreds of roads across the country. We're going to wait 72 hours for military intervention, blah, blah. The military is coming, blah, blah, blah. And then in reality, it's like 10, 10 highways. It's still a lot, but... Um, I think for now, I mean, I'm not a psychic, but I think the end game here is not to have a coup. It's to create enough doubt uh, that they can leave the Lula administration continually destabilized, you know, with a large percentage of the population not recognizing its legitimacy like you have in the United States with Biden victory, you know. So I think I think there's some other purpose. I don't think I mean, basically, when you've got China, India, Russia, the United States, you know, NATO through Zelensky, whatever, everyone immediately recognizing the fairness of the election and recognizing Lula's victory. I don't think the Brazilian military are going to get on board 
with like a 1960s style, you know, imposition of a military junta. I just don't think that's going to happen. As Camila Escalante, who's done incredible, I think, reporting on these elections. I mean, she's the only foreign journalist I know who came down for the entire process. You know, she was she was down here for the entire six week um, electoral campaign season. She says these kinds of coups don't happen when everyone in the world's watching. You know, normally they happen in the shadows. So I think the end game here is just destabilization, oh, trying to weaken his mandate, which the crowds that poured onto the streets of Avenida Paulista last night showed. He does have a massive amount of support. But they're going to try and weaken his mandate so that he's blackmailed into maintaining as much of this bridge to the future economic program as you know as possible. Yeah, and and I do want to talk about Congress and the the obstacles he'll face there. But before that, I want to talk about Venezuela because this is not a minor issue. Bolsonaro was a key figure in the U.S. backed the U.S. led coup attempt against Venezuela's Bolivarian government. Uh, Bolsonaro himself was deeply involved in the coup attempt. Uh, in fact, we know because of reporting from mainstream Brazilian media outlets like O Globo that Bolsonaro's regime backed violent terrorist attacks, cross-border attacks in Venezuela. Of course, Brazil and Venezuela share a border. So Bolsonaro himself literally supported terrorism, terror attacks on Venezuela. And of course, he supported at least originally the U.S. puppet Juan Guaido and refused to recognize Nicolas Maduro as the real elected president of Venezuela. Meanwhile, Lula da Silva, during the coup attempt, at the peak of the coup attempt in early 2020, Lula re reaffirmed, he said, that Nicolas Maduro is the elected president of Venezuela. And Lula referred to Guaido as a fraud and a criminal who should be in prison. And in response to his victory, on the night of October 30th, Lula retweeted, I mean, he, he did this for many leaders of the world, right? Like um, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, Antonio Costa of, of Portugal. So it wasn't just Maduro, but the fact that Lula retweeted the congratulations from Nicolas Maduro shows that Lula is going to restore diplomatic relations with Venezuela, which Brazil has not had for years now. And it shows that Although, again, Lula is not a revolutionary. He's not Hugo Chavez, but he is going to be a friend of Venezuela. And he's going to help be part of this process of ending that never ending U.S. coup attempt against Venezuela. Talk, talk about Brazil-Venezuela relations and what Lula could potentially do. OK, but first, I'm just laughing at who Twitter is suggesting that you friend based on that, that post. But, I don't know. I, I only know who, uh, you love that guy. You would love I only know who Simon Tevet is, but I don't know who uh, Fernando Enrique okay. Bill Clinton's favorite president of all times, and Anita, the pop singer. So there you go. Uh, well, apparently, Twitter associates them with Lula's account. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, they all supported Lula, so there you go. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so, yeah. But um, look. Brazil is a big country with a big conservative population. The PT, the Workers' Party supporters, represent, it's the most popular political party in Brazil by far. You know, around 25% uh, of Brazilians who are affiliated with any political party are members of PT, 
the next most popular party is like two percent has two percent of brazilian population that's because there's a core base of labor union and social movement people who are faithful allies to the pt who realize that in a capitalist society you know it, it's not going to be as far left as they would wish it could be their government they always consider the governments to be more conservative than the party itself you know and the strategy of pt since its inception has been based on the failure of armed revolutionary groups like the ones that dilma Rousseff and uh workers party original founders like jose genuino were involved in due to the failure of armed revolution they've always considered themselves to be a radical reform party based on the tenets of Antonio Gramsci, of entering existing power structures and working to create spaces of counter hegemony, democracy deepening. That's why instead of just defaulting on debt to the um, IMF, Lula paid it back early together with Nestor Kirchner. The next day the IMF laid off 2000 workers. They weren't expecting it. They lost a lot of money because of this. And then why he lent money to the IMF so that Brazil could have votes within the structure of the IMF. It also explains why he made, you know, the move which he's highly criticized over of um, joining, uh, heeding Kofi Annan's request to join the UN multilateral minister mission it was because in his mind, it was a way of Brazil entering a space of power and expanding counter hegemony in Haiti, you know, which was, I think, in hindsight, a mistake, but, um, but it explains the logic behind it, right? So they're not a radical left party. They're, I mean, they're not a radical well, revolution. And, sorry to cut you off, Brian, yeah. but an, another goal, and, and again, this is widely recognized today to have been a very bad mistake, and the UN occupation was involved in horrible crimes in Haiti. Um, although blaming Brazil and and which was a minor character and ignoring the role of the US and Canada and France, which were the main members of the core group is kind of strange. There's so much anger about Brazil and Lula, but there's less discussion of the role of the US, Canada and France. But anyway, the point yeah, is that- And it's from people who live in the US and pay taxes to the US war machine. The people yeah, who exactly. Do, most the of the other people who attack that, Lula for Haiti pay taxes to the US war machine. Half of their income tax goes to the US they're part of the US. So it makes me wonder what the deal is because I have lots of friends in Haiti who are not that like radically opposed. I got a one of the first WhatsApp messages I got last night was from a friend from a long standing left wing political family in Haiti who would always ask me not to mention his name because he doesn't want to get tied up in these kind of arguments. But, you know, he congratulated me on Lula's win, you know, and he's someone who refuses to flee Haiti because there's a portion of the Haitian left, going back to the spiralist movement, which thinks it's cowardly to go into exile. You know, they would rather make the compromises they need to stay alive and stay in their home country than flee it, no matter how bad it gets. And my buddy down there is lying on the ground of its house every day now for several hours with machine gun bullets flying around and he refuses to go into exile, right? So anyway, that's a, that's a separate tangent. Yeah, well, but what, I'm, what I'm saying, get it one, back to one, the, one quick point. The relationship Brian, with that, Venezuela, yeah. No, but the the other point is that uh, although again, this is this is something that um, that I think many people in Brazil recognize to have been a, a very bad error, and they've apologized for. But that said, um, the thing about Brazil also is that it thought that it could 
try to reform the the Security Council specifically because Brazil is the seventh most populous country on earth, 250, 215 million people. And it's insane that we have this colonial system where the five permanent members of the Security Council are the winners of World War II. And yes, it makes sense for China, the largest country with 1.4 million, 1.4 billion people. It makes sense for the US and Russia, which are very big countries. But it's crazy that Britain and France, which comparatively speaking are rather small countries, have permanent seats in the Security Council, but not Brazil or India or Pakistan or Indonesia or Nigeria or Kenya. So Lula thought that he could help to democratize the UN Security Council by having more Global South representation. But of course, we saw that unfortunately it didn't actually happen. Yeah, and I was there, like I I've been to Haiti three times. I was there working, after, I got there three days after the earthquake. And then I returned that year during the cholera epidemic, which was caused by Traval's wife's sewage disposal company throwing the Naples, you know, uh, soldiers sewage into a river where women did laundry. And I saw that disaster, which you have to, you know, blame the UN for because they were there, you know, they spread the cholera. I, I was there when that happened. So I, I'm not, I don't dismiss or write off Haiti. I love Haiti. That's why I just, you know, I get really um, stressed out sometimes when, I mean, I, I think that most people in Brazil are really, you know, embarrassed. The idea wasn't definitely to spend 10 years there. It was, a, I think it was a, it was an error, but you have to understand the logic behind it, which was, as you say, to try and open uh, space for third world countries within the UN Security Council and, you know, open space of counter hegemony. But anyway, that's a different subject. With Venezuela, getting back to Venezuela, um, it's ironic. You have these small left wing parties in Brazil that consider them harder left or more left than the PT, like the PESOL, which has some good, you know, good politicians in it. But um, the, the PT has is consistently better on these kinds of issues of um, South South solidarity, so like when Glaze, when Lula was in jail, Glazy Hoffman, the president of the PT party, went to Nicolas Maduro's inauguration, and their 2014 presidential candidate, um, Luciana Genro, publicly criticized the Workers Party for like you know going to the inauguration of a dictator, you know one of the most important people within the PSOL party. The PSOL party also praised the Hong Kong protests. They invited, you know, protesters from Hong Kong to give a speech in Sao Paulo initially, you know. So um, you see some instances of people pretending, you know, acting like they're hard left, they're farther left than the PT, but on international issues, the Workers' Party is much more a friend of, you know, other international left and, you know, part of the international left than some of these other smaller political parties. I mean, you can criticize uh, the Workers' Party and the Lula presidency on a bunch of things, you know, economically, uh, not, you know, rupturing with capitalism or whatever, um, not transforming Brazil into a socialist society and things like that. But on international issues, you'll see that there's never, we didn't go into the war in Iraq. Lula said to Bush, my war is with hunger, you know, Solidarity, all good relations with China, um, refusing to put sanctions on Iran, visiting Iran several times, trying to negotiate an end to the nuclear crisis in Iran, 
Um, and you'll see that sometimes Lula will say things about Ortega or Maduro or something like that. His one criticism he makes all the time is like based on his pet peeve, which is that he thinks that there should be an alternance of power. Um, you know, he wishes that Ortega could find a successor and not concentrate all of the power in the hands of a single leader person. Um, uh, so that there could, you know, could, there could be a successive left-wing governments in Nicaragua. And he says the same about Venezuela, but you see what the result of that was in Brazil. It didn't really work out very well. Yeah, I mean, because there was a lot of pressure for him to run for office for a third time. And he was like, no, I believe in alternance of power. I'm definitely not going to change the law to allow myself to run for a third time. And then what happened? He helped get Dilma Rousseff elected and they cooed her because she didn't have the political, you know, savvy that he had really. Uh, she or, was or a Bolivia. brilliant. Yeah. That's what happened Bolivia. in Bolivia when Evo Morales was criticized for trying to go back for a fourth term and there was a coup. Yeah. It's just like, I mean, that's the one thing, like sometimes people on the left in other countries in Latin America, why did Lula say this? Why did he do this? First of all, you have to understand during the election season, Bolsonaro was spending, you know, millions and millions of dollars accusing Lula of being a collaborator with communist dictatorships. And so, and also of being a baby killer. Basically, Lula's a communist baby killer who hobnobs with horrible dictators like Daniel Ortega. And so whenever the mainstream media asked him about this stuff, baby killer being because he's historically supported the right to abortion as, as recently as like six months ago. Um, so whenever they asked him about this, he said, oh no, I don't personally support abortion. Um, and like he would say about Nicaragua and Venezuela, any problem with those countries has to be solved by the citizens of that country. It's not our job as Brazilians to intervene in any other foreign nation. We have to respect their sovereignty. Personally, I believe that, you know, Daniel Ortega should have stepped down after three mandates and let someone else run, you know, because I believe in alternance of power. And then he got, there's a lot, I saw a lot of criticism like on Twitter and stuff when he said this stuff, but you have to put it into the context of, you know, endless accusations that he was he was friends with dictators you know which i get accused of myself because i work for telesur you know? that moron well i'm not even i won't even go into it oh uh, a moron i won't say his name who works for one of the biggest newspapers in the world you know accused me of getting my paychecks signed by a, a dictator nicolas maduro signs my paychecks so my journalism's invalid you know and it's just like it's factually incorrect. <laughs> I don't get my paycheck signed by Nicolas Maduro. And also Telesur. I'm proud that Telesur is associated with the Venezuelan government, but Telesur is multilateral. You know, it's several governments in Latin America. That's why when you go look at Telesur's Twitter page, it doesn't say this, uh, you know, this company, this media is associated with the government of Venezuela. It says this media is associated with several Latin American governments without naming names. Absolutely. That was a bit of a tangent. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I mean, this is important context. And I will say just a, a very brief anecdote. I went, I was in Caracas, Venezuela in 2019 for the Foro de Sao Paulo, um, which of course is 
named the Foro de Sao Paulo because it was originally formed in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and uh, Lula was a big part of that. But anyway, the point is that I, w I was uh, at the 2019 summit of the Foro de Sao Paulo in Caracas, and on, on July 28th, there was a celebration of Hugo Chavez's birthday. Of course, he passed away, but celebrating his what would have been his birthday. And at that ceremony, there were all the representatives from different parties, from left-wing parties across Latin America and the Caribbean. And Nicolas Maduro gave a speech at the end of the ceremony, and he led a chant of Lula Libre, Lula Libre. So, I mean, Venezuela, all the other major left-wing parties across Latin America and the Caribbean support Lula. They support the Workers' Party in Brazil. And especially when he was imprisoned, they were campaigning for him to be freed because they understand that, again, Lula is not Fidel Castro. He's not a revolutionary. But in the context of Brazilian politics, he is by far the most important left-wing political leader and is not only in terms of his social policies of fighting poverty and hunger and fighting climate change, which is a topic I want to ask about in a second, but also in terms of his commitment to regional integration. Lula has always been committed to fighting against imperialism and hegemony, and also fighting to strengthen Latin America's voice on the international stage. And we talk about a multipolar world. He understands that a multipolar world is not only condemning and opposing European and U.S. imperialism, but also turning Latin America and the Caribbean into one of those poles, into, into having its own international influence and fighting to create a new kind of international system. And, you know, there are so many things we could say about that. But one of the another topic that is extremely important here that we haven't gone into is climate change. And Brazil, of course, has been referred to as the lungs of the planet Earth because of the Amazon rainforest. Bolsonaro himself, he proudly said that he's Captain Chainsaw and he gave Brazilian big agriculture corporations free reign to just destroy the Amazon and deforest illegally and also basically commit genocide and ethnic cleansing against indigenous nations in Brazil. So let's talk about climate change and the Amazon rainforest and how Lula can do a complete 180 compared to Bolsonaro. Okay, but first I have to let you know, I started talking about Telesur and I just opened my, <laughs> my phone And I forgot, I've got to work, I still got to do some work for Telesur today. <laughs> so we'll, we'll um, wrap up soon. I've got to, yeah, I got, I can talk a little bit longer, but I can't like, I can't stay on as long as I wish I could because I'm, I think this is really, I always really enjoy talking to you. Yeah, same um, here. Well, you know as well as I do, Ben, that uh, there's a cadre of international Trotskyists, you know, academic, um, some of them associated with NED who always try to attack the Latin American left for being anti-environment, right? Like, oh my God, <clears throat> the, you know, Evo Morales' government was a failure because he failed to, you know, wean the nation off of petroleum as if it's the job of the periphery nations and in the international capitalist system to lead that fight, right? So there, you know, I've had to argue with a bunch of people over the years about, you know, attacking the Workers' Party for its environmental record. <clears throat> First of all, um, the Lula government was, and I've seen, I've seen, you know, journalists say this, oh, there's no real significant difference between Lula's record on the Amazon and, um, 
and Bolsonaro's and things like that. It's just ludicrous, right? The Amazon is a huge area, very lawless in many places, because the kinds of people who get involved in illegal logging are armed criminal gangs, right? Uh, with good weapons and things like that. So if you look at the most violent areas in Brazil, they're always in the areas where they're cutting down the forest. So it's not, and it's a huge expansion of territory. It's larger, the Amazon is larger than the United States, the continental United States. And, and so there's always been a problem of enforcement, which is getting better and better with, uh, was getting better and better with satellite technology until Bolsonaro fired all the leaders of the, you know, the satellite monitoring department all resigned after he butchered their funding. But it's important to remember that Lula, uh, the Lula administration was won an award in the UN for being the world leader in greenhouse gas emission reduction during his presidency. And this was done mainly by 80% reduction in deforestation, right? There's other things have to be done. I mean, they have to replant as well. What they're doing now, unfortunately, because this ridiculous, like neoliberal green capitalism carbon credit system is that people are getting carbon credit for planting eucalyptus forests in former Amazon. And eucalyptus just devastates the environment, right? Um, they call, the MST calls it the green desert. But not only did they make massive reductions in deforestation, they they spend a lot of money on wind and solar, you know, they, they uh, and alternative fuel research and things like that. And so the first thing that has to happen when Lula takes office is he has to <clears throat> reestablish funding for all of the governmental regulatory agencies and the Indigenous Affairs Bureau that have been completely gutted by Bolsonaro. All the enforcement agencies you know, that had the, the guns taken away from them by Bolsonaro. I mean, look what happened. Bruna Pejera, who was murdered alongside uh, Guardian journalist Tom Phillips, he was the leader of one of these local agencies in the Amazon, and he went on leave because they weren't letting him do his job anymore. So he was like working with another indigenous group on leave from the regulatory agency because they just, Bolsonaro just paralyzed all of the agencies. So that's the first thing that has to be done. I would like to see them replanting a lot of these areas that have been deforested. But Lula has said repeatedly, and I've seen him in like four campaign events or five, seem like six campaign events, but four where he gave speeches and stuff covering it for Telesur. <clears throat> he said that Brazil can increase its agricultural production without cutting down one tree. You know, he, he said last night, a clean river in his, in his acceptance speech, one clean river is worth all of, is worth more than all of the gold they could pull out of the Amazon because the, the illegal gold mining, you know, poisons all the rivers with mercury, right? Um, so what we can expect from him is immediately reinstating the proper budget, you know, increased budget for all of these agencies and more investment in wind and solar, you know, he, he, uh, he's also been, you know, he also, during his presidency, they developed really good programs on climate change adaption. One of them was uh, installing nearly 2 million family rainwater capture systems 
they're called cisterns. They're like these huge tanks in the semi-arid regions of the Northeast, which is you know a huge region, 50 million people. It suffers from massive droughts. Those droughts are one of the reasons the populations of Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro are so big. Their populations quintupled in a 40-year space of time because of massive droughts in the Northeast that drove so many poor people to migrate down to them, including Lula himself. You know, his family was starving to death, so they had to travel in 1954 uh, on a 14-day journey down to Sao Paulo. So these, the installation of these rainwater capture systems has greatly diminished migration from the rural northeast to the big cities because people, if they have enough water to plant their crops, then they don't want to leave up there really, you know? Yeah, I mean, that that itself is a huge topic we could spend a lot of time yeah. discussing, but um, I know I want to be respectful of your time. You have to go do more reporting. It's a very busy day for you. Um, so we can start wrapping up here. I have one very important question before we wrap up, and that is the question of the Congress. I've mentioned this a few times. I didn't talk about it earlier because it's easy to get stuck in the weeds and it's kind of boring to people. But just so people who are still listening, if, if they want to understand the difficulties that Lula could have governing. Let's play a little inside baseball for a second and, and just talk about the two chambers of the Congress. We know that the Workers' Party formed an electoral alliance with the Communist Party and also with the Green Party. And they're one of the larger uh, coalitions in the Congress, but they don't have a majority in either chamber, which means that, that Lula is going to have to make political alliances with many kind of centrist parties even you know neoliberal parties in order to try to get legislation passed although he still has the possibility of you know executive actions and and lula has a history of governing with a divided congress like this so can you explain what the congress looks like right now and what the possibility would be for a bolsonarista right-wing opposition within the congress okay well i wrote about this in an article i published in brazil where they got rerun in fair which is uh last month it's like media spins Lula victory is defeat. <clears throat> um, I, I see a lot of people saying like, oh my God, he didn't get a majority of co in Congress. Bolsonaro didn't get a majority in Congress either. Last night, six of Bolsonaro's eight gubernatorial candidates lost as well. <clears throat> the PT increased its number of members of Congress to the same level it was during the Dilma Rousseff administration after six years of having its name, the party name, dragged through the mud, erroneously associated with corruption, they've restored themselves to the same level they were in Congress during the Dilma Rousseff administration. 68 members of the 514 strong Congress. There's 23 political parties represented in Congress. It's the second biggest party in Congress after Bolsonaro's you know, party which the name of which gives such a headache to Tucker Carlson and and probably Greenwald too that you never see them mentioning the name of his party. The, the Liberal Party. The Liberal Party. The liberals associated the liberal elites, you know, associated with Bolsonaro, they have 90 seats. Okay. But you take this 68, the other coalit direct coalition members, Communist Party, PV, they have 12. That raises up to 80. And then um there's the PSOL, you know, which I like to make fun of them sometimes just to annoy American, like Brooklyn hipster leftists who, who've been treating PSOL as the future of the Brazilian left for the last eight years. 
telling everyone we should forget about Lula and the PT because the PISOL was the future. That That's my beef with people in the U.S. The PISOL itself, you know, in Congress, it's a faithful ally to the Workers' Party, so much so that Guillermo Bulos decided not to run for president this year because he didn't want to be manipulated like Ciro Gomez was into being this kind of like third path alternative to weaken uh, Lula's candidacy, you know? They have 12, they got another two members. So you have to include them with this 80. And you can say this core block that's gonna vote together on everything is 92. So it's a little bit stronger than Bolsonaro's party, although they have their alliances as well. Neither of these core groups have enough, have a majority. The majority are these historic center-right parties ranging to far right and center right, but they're connected to the, you know, the 300 families, descendants of the former plantation owners that have been running this, you know, that were running the country for 500 years before Lula made history and took office in 2000 as three and three is the first poor, you know, person to ever get, get into the presidency. So these parties have a tradition of just sticking to whoever's in power, right? So like, what it means is that in order to govern, the PT is not going to be able to be as far left as they want to be because they're going to need <clears throat> to make concessions to parties like the MDB, Democrats, you know, and other big parties that have more, you know, lots of representatives there. Uh, that's exactly what the PT did the first 13 years they were in office. The PT never had more than 25% of Congress, okay? Um, Bolsonaro's group looks like a big block of, you know, um, ideologically aligned supporters. Most of the ideologues, a lot of the ideologues in the Bolsonaro group lost re-election. His group of like far-right evangelicals that's, that spanned several different right-wing parties, they lost 31 seats. <clears throat> they lost 31 seats in Congress, you know. Um, a lot of the most prominent Bolsonaro supporters from 2018, many of them ended up supporting Lula just now or remaining neutral because it's really just a group of opportunists stabbing each other in the back the whole time, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and so uh, on top of that, on top of that, there's the power of executive order of decrees which is powerful in Brazil. <clears throat> when I talked about the affirmative action program that Lula pushed through initially, that the PT pushed through, I said 514, so I was off by one, I'm sorry. Um, I, uh, that executive order, that was an executive order. It took eight years after they issued the order to open up 52% of the spots in public universities to poor people before it was codified into law during the Dilma Rousseff administration. So. He has a lot of things he can do without Congress. And then even with Congress, yeah, you look, um, centrists, uh, yeah, MDB, of course. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, you look at the division here, right? Uh, 148, likely to support Bolsonaro, but open to negotiate. This is a, this is a good breakdown. I don't know where you got this, but. I mean, these in independent S&P Global, the, the secret to get really good political analysis is to go to websites that are made for investors because the investors, they cut through the BS because they just want to make money. 
So yeah. it, you don't get all like the dumb propaganda. They just want to know the facts. Yeah. Well, if you look at this here, you see that there's like, there's no, you don't need all of the like hand wringing that I've seen going on by uh, American so-called progressive or leftist journalists about what's going to happen in Congress. And this is basically what's going to happen in Congress. A lot of negotiation. And guess what? A lot of these parties that are negotiating are corrupt as hell. And so there's going to be more corruption. That doesn't mean that Lula's corrupt. It doesn't mean that the Workers' Party is corrupt. There'll probably be some Workers' Party elected officials who engage in active corruption as well because it's a big party. But historically, it's one. It's been one of the least uh, corrupt parties in Congress. You know, the, even at the height of all of that Lava Jato scandal, it was ranked like ninth in terms of political parties with members, you know, formally accused of or convicted of corruption. So there's going to be some corruption. It's not like this major, the big crippling issue that uh, makes or breaks Brazil. It's more important to get these social policies pushed through, to get the industrial policies pushed through, to stimulate creation of new businesses and industries than to be, in, in my opinion, to be like 100% corruption free. I mean, the, <clears throat> because Lula won't be able to get anything done unless he gets support from some of these political parties that are historically corrupt. You know, it's, I mean, it's just, it's depressing, but that's just how, how you push things, things through sometimes. That doesn't mean that the partnership they make will be corrupt, but some of the people participating in these measures, voting in favor of um, measures Lula's trying to push through will certainly have corruption problems, you know? But, but that's it. I mean, it, the, the graphic's good. It shows that things are a lot more complex, that Bolsonaro didn't win control of Congress or the Senate. Um, and he, he has a little bit more representation than the PT, but it's not the situation like um, probably the Biden administration is going to face next month if it loses the, you know, which I think it will lose control of Congress. It's not like the U.S. system. I mean, it's complicated. It's not there's multiple parties. It's not just like, oh, I feel like sometimes people look at Brazil from a U.S. lens. It's like, oh, my God, PT didn't get 51 percent of Congress. It's like, well, nobody, nobody ever gets 51 percent of Congress. Yeah, I mean, it's not helpful just to compare Brazil to the U.S. Now, there are some some parallels, Bolsonaro, Trump, uh, but. You know, obviously, Lula is not comparable to any Democrat leader. Maybe you could say Bernie Sanders, but he's still way better yeah. than Bernie Sanders. So. Lula's actually done things, you know, farther left than the things Bernie Sanders promises. Yeah, exactly. But I, I know you have to run, Brian. Um, I just wanted to just kind of conclude here with, once again, a kind of overall view of what this means for the world. I'll just say again that for me, as someone who focuses on geopolitics and, and empire, I think Lula's victory really is a game changer because under Lula, uh, Brazil played such an important role in this attempt to build a multipolar world. In fact, Lula in 2020, he wrote an article at the Progressive International calling for a multipolar world. And if you look at the rhetoric of U.S. politicians, like, for instance, here's uh, Trump's CIA director turned Secretary of State Mike, Mike Pompeo. He boasted as recently as last year, 2021, he said, remember BRICS? Well, thanks to Jair Bolsonaro and Narendra Modi, 
Brazil and India both get that China and Russia are threats to their people. Now, this was, of course, a little premature because we saw that for their own economic reasons, India and Brazil have been forced to continue to do a lot of trade with Russia and China. And that's not because of ideological reasons. It's simply because of economics. But the reality is that it shows that the U.S. government has been trying to sabotage BRICS by encouraging all of these internal divisions. And Lula is someone who he's the master of diplomacy. And even though he's clearly on the left, he's very good at at trying to win over politicians who don't necessarily agree with him on certain issues. And I think for me, I mean, obviously for the people of Brazil who have been devastated by six years of neoliberalism and brutal, you know, uh, brutal social devastation, obviously for them, Lula's victory is going to mean something very, very significant. But I think for those of us who follow geopolitics, Lula's victory shows that U.S. hegemony is being contested around the world and Latin America and the Caribbean play a very important part in this this move toward a multipolar world. It's not just China and Russia and India and South Africa and Indonesia. I mean, Latin America and the Caribbean are there are it's 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 a separate poll. And that poll also happens to be the most progressive left wing poll in the entire world. And I really think that the Latin American left is the international vanguard of the left. And that's why I want to thank you, Brian, for the in indispensable work you always do on Brazil. People can follow Brian at Brazil Wire and at Telesur. You can see his Twitter handle is at Brian M. Telesur. Um, Brian, is there anything else you want to plug before we conclude today? No, just uh, I want to plug happiness in Brazil. <laughs> and let's hope that... Uh, the impending coups attempts launched against Lula next year all fail. Definitely. And the last note I'll end on is this is a map now. It's not a great map. As a um, friend of the show, Arancha Tirado, showed in this, in this tweet, it is a superficial representation. It, it ignores the, the very um, intense divisions inside the Latin American left. But, you know, in a superficial level, this map is useful. It shows all of the left-leaning governments in Latin America, and it's the vast majority. Now, really, the only right-wing exceptions are Guatemala, which could be short-lived because an indigenous-led left-wing movement is on the rise in Guatemala. In Ecuador, the, the right-wing is in power, but, I mean, the left is very powerful and is probably going to win the next election. In Paraguay and in Uruguay, there's also right-wing governments, but excluding them, most of the governments in the region are left-leaning and in, in the largest countries for the first time ever in the history of Latin America, because Colombia has never had a left-wing government until recently, for the first time, all of the large major populations in Latin America have left-wing governments, or at least left-leaning governments, despite the many internal divisions and contradictions. So this is a very historical moment, I think, for the Let region. Let me just add that the population of those four blue countries is roughly equivalent to the greater Sao Paulo metropolitan area. Exactly. And that's not to say those are insignificant. Not to diminish the importance, you know, of, and the people there, but I'm just saying in terms of, you know, population living exactly. under less governments now. Yeah. I mean, this is the first time in history that Brazil, Mexico and Colombia 
have all had in Argentina, although, you know, the government there is not great and it's kind of on the verge of potentially losing power. It's, it's the being cooed. They're, just, they're yeah. just trying to coo it constantly. I don't blame Alberto Fernandez for the problems in Argentina. Yeah, exactly. So as with all of these situations, you know, Peru also, uh, Pedro Castillo is facing Peru's, yeah, Peru's more Peru's kind in of lawfare. Like, and you and know, this Chile, like we don't really know what's going on with Chile because it's kind of like, that is, I mean, there's signs as total like compatible NGO left type stuff. Yeah. But the point is that, I mean, you know, we, we were, earlier we spent a lot of time talking about lawfare, legal warfare, judicial warfare against Lula. And that's the same thing we see against Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner in Argentina. It's the same thing we see being used against Pedro Castillo in Peru to try to do a coup against him. So the right wing in all of these countries, the oligarchy is very powerful still and very vicious. But the point is that the left is ascendant and Latin America continues to lead the world when it comes to the left and in resisting imperialism. And I think now Brazil is going to have a rightful place in that struggle once again. And I want to thank you, Brian, for helping to explain all of these things that are happening in Brazil. I'll just, for the fifth time, I'm just going to tell people they should go to Brazil Wire because for me, it's been a very influential resource. The work that you all do at Brazil Wire is, of course, indispensable. And, and of course, Telesur as well. Telesur is one of the best media outlets. So thank you for the work that you do, Brian. Hopefully I'll have you get, uh, again soon to talk about the inauguration when Lula comes in in a few months. Yeah, and keep up the good work with Multipolarists. And you should come down to the inauguration January 1st. You should try and make it. I hope I can. Right. I hope I can. Take well, it easy, man. I gotta get. I really gotta fly now. So yeah, yeah. Literally Thanks, flying Brian. to Recife in a few hours. So <laughs> take Thanks, it easy. Yep. Yeah, and I want to thank all of the people who commented. There was a very vibrant discussion and a bit of a debate. I want to thank all the super chat comments. Uh, Teresa two seven three, who uh, recommended uh, my interview on macro and cheese with Steve Grunbein. And yeah, that was a fun conversation. I talked about the the geopolitical economy of the new Cold War, the economics of the new Cold War, and you know the neoliberal financialized system that the U.S. represents as opposed to the Chinese socialist system. Um, also, Rich for thanks to the Super Chat, and thanks to everyone else. There was a, hundreds and hundreds of comments. I always wish I could respond to these comments, but there are so many of them that it's actually impossible for me to respond to all of them. But I, I really am grateful. If you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe below. And this will be available as a podcast later. And if you want to support the show, I don't have any major sponsors. I don't have any big backers. You can go to patreon.com slash multipolarista. And I will you know, continue doing coverage of imperialism and geopolitics. And I'll see you all next time. Thanks a lot.